as a child, I remember being moved around a lot. I went to about five or six different schools by the time I was 12. And I never really developed a sense of place or became rooted in any one community. There are neighborhoods from my past that I can look back on now that have completely changed in character and culture. The faces in some of these spaces are no longer reflective of my own or the community that once lived there. The reason that many of these communities have made such sharp changes has a lot to do with inequity. You say then that the United States is not the black man's country. Definitely American not. laws no, are no. not black men's laws. No. So, I, American laws are not the black man's laws. Well, the, the uh, laws here in America were made white, by white people for the benefit of white people. The Constitution was written by whites for the benefit of whites. It was never written for the benefit of blacks. And, and when you read the Constitution, I think in Article 1, Section, Article 1, Section 2, or Section 1, Article 1, some one of the two, and it's in the Constitution, it says that uh, it classifies black people as three-fifths of a man. Three-fifths of a man, subhuman, less than a human being. It relegates us to the level of cattle, hogs, chickens, cows, a commodity that could be bought and sold at the will of the master. No, it was written by whites for the benefit of whites and to the detriment of blacks. The clearest and most obvious detriment to the development of minority communities is urban inequity. Urban inequity is the biased distribution of urban resources to different groups of people and is usually based on race, sex, income, social class, or other cultural identifiers. Racism in a nutshell is a power structure, which works on a system of oppression, advantage, and in the case of supremacist groups like the Ku Klux Klan, of a supposedly superior race. Racism exists when one racial group has the power to oppress another and is able to exercise this power to systematically increase their own capacity or influence. Welcome fellow urban enthusiasts. I'm your host Brett Kahn, and with me as always is Saba Sarkade, and we are both second year urban planning grad students from the College of Environment and Design at the University of Georgia. Today's episode is titled Racial Inequity in America, and it's part one of our two-part series on urban inequity. We all have to agree that the climate in the country right now, it is not a good climate. Um, and I'm not talking about the weather either. That was Arles Rivera, a former community outreach sergeant who worked under the police department at the city of Norcross in Georgia. And the climate that she's talking about, well, let's just run the clip. I'm just talking about the differences between races and, and the cultures and how uh, it almost seems like we're clashing and if we create that, and that's what they're seeing in a community, then it's going to be even worse for them, especially with the community and the immigrant community that doesn't feel safe, feels like they're out to get them, that the um, that ICE, the police, uh, that if these immigrants who are undocumented say something or use their voices or find help, look for help, call the police, use their name in any way, they're going to feel like they're bringing attention to themselves and so the last thing they want to do is bring attention to themselves. You know what Arliss is talking about isn't something recent. These systems of racism have been founded and practiced through historical and present efforts. Laws and injustices such as slavery, sharecropping, black codes, redlining, Jim Crow laws, 
or the more prevalent mass incarceration of people of color, particularly the black populace, underscores how the country has been nurturing racism for more than 400 years. And in order to combat these forms of oppression, there have been several notable movements, groups, and acts of legislation. There were the Reconstruction Amendments following the Civil War, the 20th Century Civil Rights Movement, the formation of various civil rights groups, and more recently, the Black Lives Matter movement. So you would think after all these efforts, we must have met our goals of equity. Not quite. Black unemployment rate have been two times higher than that of whites for the past 60 years. African Americans with college degrees are two times more likely to be unemployed than their white counterparts. And get this, applicants with traditionally associated quote-unquote white names are called back 50% more often than people with black-sounding names, even with identical resumes. And in the education sector, black students are three times more likely to be suspended than white students for similar infractions. Once black kids are in the criminal justice system, they are 18 times more likely to be tried as an adult than white children. 90% of national wealth is held by white families, and black families hold just 2.6% of it. For every $100 earned by white families, black families earn around 57. And as a country founded by immigrants, it's also important to take a second and look at what is the immigrant experience today? The Latinx American populace now represents the largest immigrant and minority group in the U.S. Listen to Arliss share her experience of what it was like growing up as a Latinx American. I was the only one that graduated from college, but I dropped out of high school. And I, I want to say that my brother and sister also dropped out of high school, but I did it because I felt I wasn't smart enough. I felt that school wasn't for me, that I knew everything, but I wasn't book smart. So I just felt that I didn't belong. Obviously, finally, I did go to school. I got my, my bachelor's and then my master's. But I think that in a community like ours, that's an immigrant, immigrant community where my mother spoke English, but broken English, um, and she was a single mom, it makes it that much more difficult for children. Uh, when your parents are working, your children are home alone and uh, there's not a second person there, a second adult to kind of guide the children, I think that it becomes very difficult. Not only that financial responsibility for the for the one parent becomes so much more strained. And if they're not home uh, and you're, you know, you're living with food stamps and you're living in apartments that are probably, you know, not the best, self-esteem plays a huge role on moving forward. And I think that that was probably my reasoning for not feeling that an education was for me. I financially felt that I had to, I had to get a job. I had to help my family. I had to, you know, get out of poverty. And I think that that's probably one of the reasons why I didn't graduate, uh, not only because I felt I wasn't smart enough, but I think that if we focus on, you know, obviously the youth and encourage that and make that part of the curriculum to, to focus on and always be talking about going to college to encourage education that eventually will get you the financial stability that you can get. And if we're talking about educational statistics, I get to hold my head up high and say I was able to beat the odds against black children. But more often than should be, stories like mine are the exception. There was something I once heard the great poet Nikki Giovanni say at my alma mater, Norfolk State University, and it went something along the lines of, what our communities need is an education. 
after hearing this statement, a member in the audience challenged her, saying that everyone doesn't have resources and access to attaining a degree, which is fair. But I'll never forget how Nikki replied, saying, You didn't hear me. I said nothing about a degree. What I said was, we need an education. This drove home to me the ideal that the foundations of oppression can be shaken if one simply understands how to attain and has access to the resources needed to gain greater knowledge. Knowledge and intelligence cannot be quantified in how many degrees you have. Racism also makes its way into urban planning and design. Design equity and environmental justice are a few movements that were sparked by the presence of racism in urban and regional spaces. America's national parks and public lands have long been places of refuge in times of turmoil. But new government data first shared with ABC News shows people of color are less likely to take advantage of the great outdoors. Carolyn Finney in her book Black Faces, White Spaces writes, Parks and forests can unintentionally become sites where African Americans experience insecurity, exclusion, and fear born out of historical precedent, collective memory, and contemporary concerns. This statement right here summarizes the state of parks and recreational spaces in the U.S. Historically, U.S. parks have been a place of discrimination. When slavery was legally recognized, I mean, other than that clause on the 13th Amendment that says, except as a punishment for crime, seriously, look it up, the diasporic Africans shipped to America for the purpose of slave labor were not included in park planning. Well, they were forced from their homeland, so would you really expect otherwise? Even after the adoption of the Reconstruction Amendments following the Civil War, things didn't really change. Jim Crow's separate but equal concept led to the adoption of segregation of spaces on a racial basis. African Americans were allowed to enjoy the park, but only in certain spaces. And those certain spaces looked very different than the ones accessible to whites only. Ill-maintained facilities, racial profiling, and harassment were just a few of the many challenges faced by black people in green spaces. Even in current times, most parks and green public spaces have a lower rate of African-American visitors, even when parks are surrounded by black communities. Research conducted by North Carolina State University focused on Cedar Hill State Park in Texas and discovered that African-Americans make up only 11% of the visitors, compared to the 67% of the white visitors, even though more than half of the surrounding population comprises of African-Americans. Although this study is site-specific, it showcases a trend in most parks and recreational spaces across the country. Future parks need to take added efforts in order to be more inclusionary of communities of color. A former city government employee in his late 50s and very familiar with the history of community who was part of this study summarized the experiences of African Americans by drawing comparisons between the white and black experiences of public spaces. Historically, spaces were black only and whites only. Whites could freely roam wherever they want. They could check in in any hotel they desired. They had the freedom to dine in public spaces, but Blacks were restricted on all fronts. This account, and many like it, fuel fears and insecurities shared among minorities, and specifically African Americans. Segregative acts such as redlining exacerbated the oppressive environment African Americans have historically endured. Add to that the lack of investment in the community, heavily influenced by redline maps, you are oftentimes left with a community that has poorly funded schools, failing infrastructure, and poor housing. This in turn creates a lack of job opportunity, which leads to increased drug use and crime rates. That affects how police view and respond to these neighborhoods. This also influences the increased rate of brutal force and exploitation that has set the stage for the unjustified murders of Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, George Floyd, 
and so many others. Public parks are not inclusive. One thing designers need to confront is the fact that not all Americans enjoy public spaces in the same manner. Race, history, and user behavior are all the interrelated dialogues of the same conversation that is environmental justice. When park and recreational spaces are commissioned or developed, they are usually targeted towards the white elite. The advertisements speak their language, the inclusionary surveys are typically dominated by white samples, and there is a lack of staff diversity. African American communities do not need equal, but equitable spaces. By 2016, the number of conventional mortgages had risen 95% since the housing bust. And yet some Americans are still being left behind. The gap between white and black ownership is wider now than it was in 1960. In 1933, the U.S. was faced with a housing shortage. And in response, the Federal Housing Administration, or FHA, is established in 1934 explicitly to increase housing availability for middle to lower middle class whites. This and a slew of other programs were created under President Franklin D. Roosevelt's legislative response to the Great Depression. You may know it as the New Deal. The FHA began refusing to insure mortgages in and around African American homes and simultaneously subsidizing home builders while requiring that no homes would be sold to African Americans. Maps were drawn and color coded firstly by the Homeowners Loan Corp or Hulk, and subsequently adopted by the FHA and Veterans Administration. All areas where African Americans lived or lived near were considered too risky to insure. Effectively, redlining ensured that black neighborhoods would suffer from low levels of investment. The attempt at justification for this segregated living made by the FHA was the belief that somehow, if African Americans were to buy homes in or around white suburbia, that the property values would decline. In actuality, the basis of this argument is unfounded. The Federal Housing Administration rationale was solely based on act of racism and shared no footing in reality. When African Americans somehow did manage to buy homes in mostly or all white neighborhoods, the property values actually rose because black residents were far more willing to pay more for homes than their white counterparts, especially since Housing supply for them was so scarce and oftentimes restricted. The FHA's underwriting manual states that incompatible racial groups should not be permitted to live in the same communities and even suggests the use of physical barriers such as highways as a mean of separation between white and black communities. Oftentimes, these barriers demarcated between North and South where the affluent or white neighborhoods were positioned in the North and the poorer, at-risk, primarily African-American neighborhoods were positioned in the South. Meant as a follow-up to the Civil Rights Act of 1964, President Lyndon B. Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act of 1968 on April 11th. It prohibited discrimination based on race, religion, national origin, sex, and as amended, handicap or family status concerning the sale, rental, and financing of housing. The act was expeditiously approved by Congress because of the ongoing national riots that were being made in response to the April 4th assassination of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And we all know that once legislation is passed, all the problems are solved, right? Uh, I don't think so. The passing of the Free Housing Act in 1968 made it legally possible for African Americans and people of color to purchase homes in communities like Levittown. But due to years of FHA policy implementation, the black community that was equally capable of affording housing as their white counterparts back in the 30s and 40s, and even the 50s, no longer could due to the long-lasting impact of inequity made possible by federal policy. 
Currently, African-American income is somewhere around 60% of the average white income. African-American wealth is about 5% of white wealth. Why are the equity gaps between white and black families so profound? Well, a majority contributor of building equity is home ownership. In fact, that's how most American families build their wealth. The ramifications of the early 20th century policy had a ripple effect that continually contributes to the oppression of black families today. While white families were able to send their children to college and in turn, those children were able to better take care of their parents in old age and then continually bequeath wealth to their children and so on, the black community did not share in those same benefits. And because of this lack of investment in the red line hazardous neighborhoods, many traditional communities of color are seeing their neighborhoods being gentrified today. Low-income minorities pushed out of their homes because of gentrification. Yeah, it's an ongoing problem across the Austin area. A new report sheds light on just how much, showing that this is happening in more than a dozen neighborhoods and nearly two dozen more are at risk. On its face, the term gentrification sounds like a progressive and a wonderful action, where a community lacking investment is then invested in and built up to then provide it with amenities like better schooling, new housing, parks, and businesses. The problem is not the investment in the area, rather the associated displacement of the long-time residents who once lived there. Most long-time residents cannot afford the new property values brought on by the redevelopment, and hence are eventually forced to sell their property. Historical residents that managed to stay in their former neighborhoods are likely to experience cultural displacement where the changes to the character and makeup of the neighborhood can leave the resident feeling out of place in their own home. A 1983 study of Boston, Cincinnati, Richmond, Seattle, and Denver found that nearly a quarter of residents in these urban neighborhoods were displaced due to eviction, increased rent, or the fact that the house they were renting was sold between 1978 and 1980. Formerly redlined neighborhoods are particularly vulnerable to the act of gentrification due to their depreciated value. Humble Park, um, it still is. However, it's more now gentrified than it, what it used to be. It used to be a place, a meeting place, uh, where Hispanic community would get together. They'd have barbecues. They had softball. It's not the same softball here. Their softball is a little bit bigger than the ones that I think that other communities use in other states. But anyway, they played softball. They had picnics. They Now they there's soccer. They had um, food trucks. And uh, that's where the community met on the weekends. That's where they had their festivities. That's where they came together. And it's a really big park in Chicago. Now the neighborhood's been gentrified. Now the neighborhood, you can't buy property there because families that used to be there, the Hispanic community that used to be there, predominantly Puerto Rican, if you go there, there's a huge metal flag that goes from one side of the street to the other. Now this is a four-lane street. It starts on one side and it goes for a couple miles and at the other end is the flag as well. It's the Puerto Rican flag. So, but families and, and, and seniors who used to have a home paid for could not afford their taxes on their property. So had to sell, they couldn't keep their homes. So once this started happening and the gentrification and the white angles came in and started buying those properties, which were very expensive, the graystone properties, uh, two flats, three flats, six flats that the Hispanic community and a lot of the Puerto Ricans owned could not keep them because they could not afford their taxes. Taxes are very high. So this is an example of what happened to a community that was predominantly Hispanic, Puerto Rican pretty much, and now has changed. And I'm not saying it's for the worse, but what I'm saying is the community has been 
has been moved out slowly by this gentrification, by these others who, who come in and purchase uh, for pretty good prices. And sometimes now, because it's so expensive, you know, now the property is very valuable. And so they've been pushed out. The, the Puerto Rican community, making them and a lot of the other communities go to the suburbs, a lot of the suburbs now. So because Chicago has become so expensive to live. So now Humble Park is no longer what it was. And I can't say that it's negative. It's just not what it used to be. Removal and displacement of minority residents has long been an occurrence even before Red Line was introduced. Seneca Village. Seneca Village was once a black homeowning community that existed in what is now Central Park in New York City. Existing from 1825 to 1857, the village population comprised of around 225 residents, two-thirds of which were African-Americans, one-third were Irish immigrants, and a small number of German immigrants. There were more than 50 homes, three churches, and a school. For African-Americans, at that time, the right to vote was predicated on home ownership, so that added a layer of importance for community members. The city used eminent domain to seize the land from these residents and controversially compensated them for their properties to build Central Park. Tragically, the community never again gathered to recreate the formerly strong and racially protected community. But are you surprised with all the factors stacked against them? Sporadic displacement, re-establishing economic stability, community destabilization, and disoriented sense of place. The odds were very unlikely, even if they had tried. Now fast forward to 1921, Tulsa, Oklahoma's Greenwood. A neighborhood with a business district locally dubbed Black Wall Street is laid siege to and massacred by local white residents. Tulsa was home to around 100,000 citizens at the time, and the majority of its 10,000 black residents lived in the Greenwood neighborhood. On May 30, 1921, a black teenager named Dick Rowland entered an elevator in the Drexel building and a young white lady by the name of Paige screamed. Rowland left abruptly thereafter. Police were called and the next morning Rowland was arrested. By the time it was published in the Tulsa Tribune, it was reported that Roland had been arrested for sexually assaulting Paige. By evening, a white mob had gathered outside the courthouse and began demanding the sheriff release Roland to them. Sheriff Willard McCullough refused them, and his men barricaded the top floor to protect the black teenager. Later that evening, rumors of a possible lynching had circulated the black community, and 75 black men returned to the courthouse after 10 p.m., where they were met with 1,500 white men. After shots and chaos broke loose, the severely outnumbered black men retreated to Greenwood. Over the next 18 hours, white Tolstons committed various acts of violence against black residents. On June 1st, thousands of white citizens began looting and burning the Greenwood homes and businesses over an area of 35 city blocks. Firefighters who showed up to put out the fires were threatened by the white mob with guns and forced to leave. An estimate by the Red Cross stated that some 1,256 homes were burned and 215 others were looted and not torched. The next day, nearly 6,000 people were under armed guard at the local fairgrounds. Hours after the massacre, all charges were dropped against Roland, and the investigation concluded that he must have stumbled into or stepped on Paige's foot. The young man left Tulsa the next morning and never returned. While no definitive totals of deaths have ever been stated, the 2001 Race Riot Commission issued a report that puts the numbers somewhere between 100 to 300 people, and more than 8,000 made homeless. Today's episode dealt with various forms of American racial inequity. While we didn't have time to discuss them all, we hope you were able to broaden your perspective on how these systems still operate today. 
As we mentioned at the beginning of this episode, this is a part one of a two-part series on inequity. Tune in next week for our episode on global inequity. As you know, November 3rd is the presidential election here in the U.S. Make sure your voice is heard and vote. For information on polling locations and voting options, visit vote.org. And if you can, vote early. Now that you have let us talk, we want to let you talk. Hop over to letuscd.com and engage in discussion with fellow urban enthusiasts. If you want to dig deeper into today's content, you can find our sources listed under today's episode. This episode's research, writing, directing, and editing was a collective effort of myself and Silver Circale, urban planning graduate students from UGA's College of Environment and Design. Special shout out to Ebony Hatchet for music production. And thanks to Les Collective for the executive production of this podcast. Until next time.